Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. This is what I promise, I solemnly swear, is the last episode before the main content. If I don't follow through, you have my full permission. No, I demand that you stop listening. You can mark me on that. <clears throat> Today, we're covering the Red Air Force. The majority of this episode will discuss the development of doctrine, production, organization, logistics, and combat experience for the Red Air Force, all the way back to actually the Russian experience with aircraft up to the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. There will be a second section concerning the planes themselves, with a special emphasis on those planes widely used at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. I've also realized doing research for this episode that my episode on the Luftwaffe wasn't quite up to my standards or what I want my standards to be, so at some point I'll redo that, but as I've said, my main focus right now is main content. Anyway, let's get going. Russia's experience with aircraft, compared to that of Western Europe, was a bit sparser, although it was by no means non-existent. As early as 1725, Russian polymath Mikhail Lomonosov was experimenting with heavier-than-air designs and even created a blueprint for a helicopter. But experimentation in the Russian Empire was not equal in scale or complexity to much of what was going on in, say, Britain or France. <clears throat> and this was largely due to a lack of a full enlightenment in Russia and the empire's relative poverty. There were limited experiments with heavier-than-air designs in the late 19th century, namely one Alexander F. Mozeyevsky in the 1880s, but these were unsuccessful, though, of course, very few of these experiments, regardless of where they were taking place, were successful at that time. In the first decade of the 20th century, though, the Russian government began to invest heavily in air power, which was quickly becoming viable as technology advanced. Grand Admiral and Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich was an early advocate, remarking that victory in a future war will be impossible without an air fleet. For his time, I believe he said that about 1909, those were extremely futuristic words. But there were obvious problems in developing an air fleet for the Russian Empire. Russian industry and science was likely the most backwards of any of the major European powers, and the country had very few original designs and was rather lackluster in kind of scientific achievement. Igor Sikorsky's designs were the shining star of Imperial aviation, producing advanced aircraft, including the world's first four-engine bomber. But he was the exception, not the rule, and most of Russian's planes were brought from abroad or they were foreign models produced under license domestically. Thanks to the efforts of proponents like the Grand Duke, by the outbreak of the First World War, Russia had the largest air fleet in Europe, although this is about 250-260 planes, so it's not saying that much. But this advantage was unsustainable once the war actually broke out. Russian industry was incapable of competing with German factories, particularly once deliveries from France and Britain halted. In 1914, for instance, Germany produced 1,350 planes. In that same year, Russian factories could only produce 400. At this point in time, planes were mainly rooted in a reconnaissance role, which made about 90% of all of Russia's plane usage during the First World War. Due to low production, particularly in Russia, it was very difficult to concentrate planes in large numbers. One of the largest Russian offensives of the war, the Brusilov Offensive, was only able to muster 100 aircraft. That same offensive used 1.7 million men. Reliability was also a major problem, and it was not uncommon for a majority of aircraft to be in need of repair or otherwise unusable at any given time. On the outbreak of the Russian Civil War, what aircraft there were in the Imperial Army, about 2,000, of which 600 were operational, were split up among the Bolshevik forces and the White Army. More importantly, the Bolsheviks managed to occupy much of the industrial regions of the Russian Empire, giving them access to the greater part of the aviation industry. But the newly formed army lacked pilots and trained support crew. They had already been scarce in the Imperial Army, and most had either joined the White Forces or simply fled. The scope of the Russian Civil War, spanning from Central Europe to the Pacific Shore, made concentrating forces very difficult. And no more than a hundred planes were ever used in the same general area. Throughout all this, 
Reconnaissance remained the main use of aviation, and reconnaissance aircraft comprised about 75% of the total Red Army fleet as late as 1920. From 1921 on, the Civil War shifted from large-scale offensives and battles to smaller rebellions. And at the same time, there was an increased discussion about the current and future role of aircraft. In the early days of the Soviet Union, the air forces had plenty of friends in high places. Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky in particular were strong believers in a military rooted in technology and professionalism, something that squared well with the pair's belief in communism as a scientific form of government that required a dedicated and advanced vanguard. But one could not build an aircraft merely on political fervor. The post-Civil War USSR still suffered from the weak industry that had so plagued Tsarist Russia, made worse by the mass emigration of professional soldiers, officers, technicians, designers, and engineers, and other such personnel. Throughout the early 1920s, the state was mainly focused on recovery and the improvement of the agricultural sector, so heavy industry like aircraft production was not expected to significantly expand anytime soon. Two groups of theorists emerged on the topic of how the Air Force should be organized. One group called for a smaller Air Force, taking a realist view on current conditions. This group also tended to believe that aircraft development would begin to plateau, and that usages would largely stay the same, and there would be more iterative advancements. On the other hand, there was a group that looked to the future, where they saw a highly industrialized USSR capable of creating and maintaining a massive air force. They also saw that aircraft would continue an extremely rapid advancement in technological ability. They would fly higher, faster, carry more bombs, discover bigger weapons, and this would constantly be revolutionizing the way in which aircraft could be used, making them into extremely powerful, war-winning weapons. At the same time, though, both of these factions were in a broad agreement about the basic role of the Air Force. It should be in support of the Army. This is largely based on Russia's history as a land power that first and foremost needed to defend its territory as a primary concern. Whereas nations like the UK or US, who are also leading air powers, were coming from a point of safety, protected by, in England's case, the English Channel, and in America's case, the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and they could focus on how best to hurt the enemy without worrying so much about how to protect their own country. As a result, the Western European ideas of strategic bombing, as promoted by theorists like Dohet, were viewed with a great deal of suspicion by Soviet theorists, and not really considered viable for the Soviet Union in the 1920s. Early debates around aircraft usage pit those who maintained that aircraft were primarily for reconnaissance against those who saw more of an offensive, active role for planes like fighters or bombers. These early discussions did come to a consensus on the need to mass aircraft in an area of particular importance, as well as the need to somehow disable enemy aviation early on in the war. There remained disagreement on whether the Air Force should be an independent branch of the military, equal in status to the Army and Navy, or whether it should be subordinate to the two existing branches. Proponents of an independent Air Force contended that it would allow large-scale operations to be coordinated and would simplify command structure, while opponents feared that an independent Air Force would pursue its own operations at the expense of the Army, leaving it without support. All this while, actual aircraft production was severely limited. Only 23 machines were created in 1922. The new economic policy did improve production, pushing it from a practically existent 23 to a tiny 264 in 1924. With this, Soviet air commanders could be assured at least that they would actually have some planes, regardless of how they might be used. As Soviet theorists gained experience and refined their ideas and were able to work with actual planes, they developed a more nuanced understanding of operations. In 1926, a major article in a Soviet aviation journal divided missions into three categories, independent, separate, and service. Independent missions were those undertaken to impact the enemy beyond the battlefield or in some sort of indirect fashion, such as strategic bombing or acquiring air superiority. Separate missions had direct impact on the battlefield, 
but were conducted by units temporarily grouped under an army unit, while service missions performed the same tasks but were carried out by permanently subordinated units. Tasks for the latter two missions would include things like close air support, interdiction, and reconnaissance. This breakdown functioned in tandem with the concurrently developing doctrine of operational art and deep battle. Operational art suggests that there should be a middle level between the small-scale tactical battles and the overall strategy, concerning the conduct of the war as a whole. This middle level should help parlay tactical successes into achieving the larger goals. Deep battle incorporated the op this operational level as a core component. With roots as far back as Imperial Russia and inspired by the failures of offensives on of the Western Front of World War I, it suggested that forces needed to be arranged in depth with multiple lines of defense to provide a consistent resistance and should have reserves available to exploit a breakthrough. Huge reserves and large-scale motorized and armored forces would allow for extremely deep advances of 200 kilometers in massive operations. These operations will be planned consecutively, with multiple operations occurring across the front line and operations leading into another to give the enemy absolutely no time to form a competent defense. While originating as a land warfare doctrine, deep battle grew to include aircraft as an integral part. Some planes might drop paratroopers behind enemy lines to seize key points and destabilize enemy defenses, while bombers and close air support could act as artillery if fast-moving infantry advances left friendly artillery out of range. Within this plan, strategic bombers could also be used to impact the deep rear of the enemy. And in particular, the deep bomber, the heavy bomber, was given more resources in the 1920s, albeit grudgingly. The first dedicated heavy bomber unit was created in 1926, with multiple heavy bomber models being created. Up to the mid-1920s, most of these developments were indigenous, that is, built and developed in Russia, both in terms of doctrine and aircraft. No major power would engage in any sort of real military cooperation with the only communist state, and the USSR was also under a pretty wide military embargo. The Soviet Union got its first chance at international cooperation, as far as aviation, at the Lipetsk Fighter Pilot School, set up in 1925. Created as a part of the 1922 Treaty of Rapallo, signed with Weimar Germany, it included secret provisions for military cooperation. At this time, Germany was forbidden any sort of military aircraft under the Treaty of Versailles. Setting up the Lipetsk School deep in the Soviet interior would allow German officers to use the equipment that was forbidden to them, and Soviet officers would benefit from Germany's large-scale aviation experience during the First World War. A facility was also set up for joint aircraft development. The school began operations in 1926 and proceeded for seven years before closing in 1933 due to mutual dissatisfaction with the results and rising ideological divide with the growth of Nazism in Germany. For Germany, the program was somewhat successful, training around 1,000 personnel, which enabled them to form a nucleus that would prove helpful in growing what would become the Luftwaffe. For the Soviets, results were pretty mediocre. Germany's World War I-era tactics were outdated, and many relied upon a much larger air force than what the Soviets were able to field at the time. On the developmental side, things were a bit more productive, with several lessons being learned in the development of all-metal aircraft, something the Germans excelled at. But Soviet developers consistently complained that the Germans were not sharing the most valuable information, which is one of the major reasons for the eventual closure of the school. In 1928, an important text was published for Soviet aviation. Written by A.S. Algazin, the piece elaborated his theory on the rules of aircraft and how they should be structured. Algazin saw four major roles for aircraft. Reconnaissance, bombings, both strategic and tactical, air-to-air -air combat, and political usage. These roles could be undertaken on three levels, quite similar to the idea, to the idea of independent, separate, and service missions. In Algalzin's piece, separate missions were dubbed cooperative. For our purposes, we can consider the roles of these two trios as pretty much equivalent. However, the difference being that Algalzin did not specify how aircraft were to be assigned within the idea of these independent, separate, and service missions. 
Rather, Algalazin assigned aircraft as either troop aviation or reserve aviation. Troop aviation were directly subordinate and permanently attached to army units, such as divisions or corps, where they would conduct service missions. Reserve aviation would be under the control of armies or high commands, and they could conduct cooperative operations. Algalazin did not specifically assign a level for independent operations, as he viewed them as infeasible at the time. We can observe the thinking of Soviet Air Command and how they appraised these writings by examining Soviet 1929 field regulations, known as PU-29. Planes were divided into troop and army aviation, highly similar to Algalazin's suggestions. Tactical support was affirmed as the main goal of the Air Force, although in-depth reconnaissance was embraced. Aircraft were to be massed at critical points to gain air superiority. However, PU-29 was quite vague on the command relationship between the Air Forces and ground units, and the manner in which Army aviation was structured lacked the flexibility that characterized Algalazin's reserve aviation. 1928 also marked the beginning of a period of rapid expansion for the Red Air Force, made possible by the first five-year plan, which focused all of the Soviet resources on select economic goals. For the first plan, those goals were the collectivization of agriculture and the expansion of heavy industry. This first five-year plan was followed up with the uncreatively named second five-year plan. Just as the name was largely unchanged, so was the focus on collectivization and heavy industry. As a result, between 1928 and 1937, the amount of labor involved in aviation increased by 750%. Over a slightly shorter period, from 1930 to 1937, aircraft production increased 400%. Correspondingly, the Red Air Force grew massively. In 1928, it fielded about 900 aircraft. Four years later, that figure had doubled to 2,000. Another four years after that, that 2,000 had become 8,000. The argument over small versus large air force had become meaningless. Russian factories had decided it. As production increased, the composition of the Red Air Force also changed. Just prior to the five-year plans, 60% of Soviet aircraft were reconnaissance. In 1932, reconnaissance made up less than 20% of the total fleet. Bombers experienced the most growth, doubling in representation. In particular, the number of heavy bombers increased 20-fold. That fighters, bombers, and ground attack aircraft were created in such quantities reflects their increased utility, the result of rapid advances. Whether this met the expectations of the futurists and those who hoped for constant huge breakthroughs in aircraft ability is unclear, but the pace of advancement is impressive nonetheless. Compared to a high-quality fighter of the World War I period, a top-of-the-line Soviet fighter from the mid-1930s could fly over twice as fast and climb 3% faster. A similar comparison with bombers shows that the mid-1930s model was three times faster, could fly 240% higher, and had eight times the range of its World War I equivalent. Returning to doctrine, in 1932, the Revolutionary Military Council shifted the Air Forces from a support arm to its own branch of the military, settling another argument. In this role, the Air Forces were divided into service, army, and front aviation. In 1923, heavy bombers and bomber escorts were grouped together and put under the immediate control of the Chief of the Air Force. This commander, Iakov Aksinis, was a supporter of a bomber-heavy air force and a heavy bomber-bomber-heavy air force. And he used this influence to increase bomber production. You ever realize that when you say a word a lot, it sounds like gibberish? I'm having that with the word bomber right now. Anyway. This was not an isolated event. Bombers, in particular strategic bombers, experienced a boom in popularity in the mid to late 1930s. It was suggested that they could help gain air superiority by bombing airfields, with some arguing that they were more important for this task than fighters. Even the bombing of factories, which was previously disdained as a decidedly secondary objective, gained some credibility. Why was this? First, 
we can't discount the role of high-ranking Soviet Air Force officials in promoting bombers, as we just discussed. We also have to remember that one of the main concerns about strategic bombers in the early years of the Soviet Union was that they were too expensive, and that committing to strategic bombers would come at the cost of fighters and other aircraft that were used for tactical purposes. The five-year plans largely relieved these concerns. The Soviet industry now able to accommodate large-scale production of both strategic bombers, tactical bombers, fighters, and more planes. Without practical combat experience, though, all of these ideas remain strictly theoretical. To truly craft an effective air force, the Soviet Union would need an opportunity, or preferably multiple, for large-scale, real-life aerial warfare. In the second half of the 1930s, they would encounter many such opportunities. The first of these in Spain. On July 18, 1936, a segment of the Spanish military attempted a military coup against the left-wing government. This was unsuccessful in ousting the government, and it evolved into a Spanish civil war between a broad coalition of right-wing forces dubbed the Spanish Nationalists against a center-left coalition called the Republicans. Viewing the conflict as a proxy war between the rising ideologies of fascism and communism, the USSR sent advisors, troops, and equipment to support Republican Spain. Nazi Germany and fascist Italy had already provided such support to the Spanish Nationalists. In terms of aircraft, Soviet fighters began to arrive in October of 1936 and proved superior to standard German and Italian aircraft at the time. Very quickly, the experiences of these troops answered many of the questions that had been debated for years. Bomber advocates had argued that bomber defenses would devastate fighters attempting to intercept them, but Soviet fighters successfully intercepted nationalist bombers over Madrid in November of 1936, managing to disable their operations and inflict heavy casualties. The idea of the bomber as the be-all and end-all of air power took a further dent with Soviet attempts at strategic bombing in Spain. These efforts were marred by poor accuracy, especially at high altitudes, and poor crew training. Bombings of air bases were especially unsuccessful, and 40% of missions to bomb air bases were unable to even find their targets, partly due to effective camouflaging and the difficulty of high-altitude bombing. In March of 1937, battles around Guadalajara displayed the full power of effective air support. Nationalist planes were grounded by poor weather, but a fair number of Republican aircraft managed to get airborne. They targeted an Italian column with minimal anti-aircraft weaponry, playing a significant role in shattering these Italian forces and allowing for a Republican advance. However, Soviet fortunes would eventually take a turn for the worse. While the Red Air Force had been able to provide air superiority in major sectors for the first half year of the war, Germany began deploying advanced aircraft to Spain. These significantly outclassed anything the Soviets had, and these new German models, particularly the BF-109 fighter, eventually granted Germany broad-based air superiority. This loss in air superiority was accompanied by a general advance by nationalist forces. By the end of 1938, Soviet forces had eventually left the country, leaving the nationalists to defeat in 1939. Beginning a year after the Spanish Civil War, the Second Sino-Japanese War also acted as a proxy war of sorts between right and left-wing factions that saw the USSR lend aid. In July of 1937, Japanese and Chinese forces came to blows in the Beijing area, leading to an all-out war in which Japan attempted to subjugate China as part of its imperial designs. Japanese forces were broadly superior to those of the Chinese, particularly in the air, where the Chinese could only field a small number of outdated aircraft. Stalin's motives for helping China were not quite as straightforward as they might have been in Spain, which had a left-wing government and significant communist power. The de facto national government of China, the Republic of China led by Chiang Kai-shek, was strictly anti-communist. But Chiang Kai-shek was also pragmatic. He knew that China was in a desperate state, and he was willing to take help where he could get it, yes, even from communists. Stalin valued this and believed that it was possible that the USSR could gain influence in China and potentially steer it in a leftist direction. Stalin also preferred a disorganized but independent China, even an anti-communist China, to an aggressively expansionist, militarily powerful, and similarly anti-communist Japan. 
Soviet air aid to China represented about 600 to 1,000 planes, as well as 3,700 military personnel. This is in addition to loans, technical advice, and aid with conducting uh, industrial expansion. China ended up proving a, an easier environment for the Soviets in Spain. Japanese aircraft were not quite of the same quality as the advanced German machines, and Soviet planes were able to establish air superiority when they concentrated forces, allowing them to use close air support and ground attack aircraft highly effectively. Remaining in the Far East, Soviet and Japanese air forces came to blows directly at several occasions in the late 1930s, the two most prominent being at Lake Kasan on the Russo-Korean border and at Kalkin Gol on the Chinese-Mongolian border. The latter, fought in July and August of 1938, was not particularly informative regarding aircraft. The Soviet forces were aided by 250 aircraft, while Japanese planes were nowhere to be found. In part due to this, Soviet forces did win at Kasan, but it provided little information as to the proper use of air power. A bit more informative were the actions at Kalkin Gol, where Soviet and Japanese forces clashed from May to September of 1939. Here, the Japanese did bring their own aircraft, about 400 of them, although they were significantly outnumbered by the Soviet 900. At this point, this was the largest air battle since World War I had ended, and marked something close to what an air war between industrialized powers would look like, at least more so than anything seen in the Spanish Civil War. The initial air combat was pretty disastrous for the Soviets. They sustained severe losses, forcing a grounding of almost all Soviet aircraft for a month while they sorted out the situation. Soviet planes were equal and in some cases superior to Japanese models, but Soviet pilots were poorly trained and could not effectively coordinate or use doctrine. Soviet pilots were rapidly retrained, and when they again met the Japanese in combat on June 22nd, they fared much better, although on a man-per-man basis, were in many ways still inferior to Japanese pilots. Thanks to these lessons and Soviet numerical superiority, the Red Air Force was able to establish air superiority by the end of July and operate with moderate effectiveness in supporting an innovative combined arms operation that crushed the Japanese forces at Kalkin Gol. Combat ended on September 16, 1939. The day after this, Stalin fulfilled his end of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact by invading eastern Poland. For this, the Soviet invasion effort numbered thousands of planes. By contrast, the Polish Air Force had essentially ceased to exist. Given this, and that combat only lasted three weeks, there's not a whole lot to say about this as a commentary on Soviet air power, although the coordination and organization of Soviet air units in the Polish campaign proved pretty poor. The final real combat experience for the Red Air Force prior to the German invasion was the Winter War, fought against Finland in the winter of 1939-1940. By all indications, this should have been a steamroll for the Soviets, something that I could gloss over much like I just did with Poland. The Finnish Air Force numbered no more than 200 mostly outdated planes, and yet not only is the Winter War worth discussing, it was the greatest humiliation, in my opinion, the USSR had suffered militarily at this point ever. Admittedly, some of the problems the Soviets faced in the air war in Finland were not in their control. The weather was abysmal, with temperatures as low as negative 50 degrees Celsius making machines unusable, and heavy snow and wind grounding those planes that might still be able to fly. Although, on the other hand, the Soviets may not have been able to control the weather, but cold and snow in Finland in the winter could not have been a surprise. Anyway, skilled Finnish pilots consistently outperformed their Soviet counterparts, and Finnish fighters often were able to engage entire groups of Soviet planes, dealing heavy casualties and still managing to get away. Soviet bombers proved incompetent on both a strategic and tactical level, with accuracy trending towards the abysmal. Major Finnish cities like Helsinki were the target of Soviet bombing, but many were nearly undamaged due to the sheer ineptitude of Soviet crews. Eventually, of course, force of numbers began to make itself felt, and the air war turned in the Soviet favor. But the Winter War will be remembered the world over, especially by Germany, as a Goliath falling flat on his face, and many began to wonder if it was a Goliath in name only.
But what were the lessons of these conflicts of the last four years? On a technical level, Soviet planes were now outdated, especially compared to German machines. Fighters and bombers were too slow. Ground attack aircraft needed to be more heavily armored, and the need for especially built ground attack aircraft became even more obvious. All this was not exactly new, but most Soviet aviators and air theorists were surprised at how rapidly the aircraft had gone from world-class to obsolescent or obsolete. Radios were needed. Shockingly, these had been almost completely absent until now, making coordination a matter of guesswork. Doctrinally, the Spanish Civil War revealed some important facts. Bombers, a rising star in the mid-1930s, lost much of their prestige as a concept of the fast bomber, which we'll get into later. Bombing airbases and high-accuracy bombing were tested and found wanting. Fighters regained importance as bomber escorts and as the primary tool to establish aerial superiority. Close air support and its potential to demolish ground forces supported the doctrine of tactical air support as the main function of the Air Force. The extent to which air units were subordinated under Army units was deemed excessive, reducing the potential for strategic and operational air missions and allowing officers with little to no air training to decide on aerial conduct. These criticisms were met with stiffer resistance than the debate over bombing, as Army officers were still fearful that independent air units would leave the Army all on its own. I won't bore you with the last intricacies of the eternal back and forth argument over doctrine up to the German invasion, but suffice it to say that by the beginning of Barbarossa, the Red Air Force had more or less returned to its focus on close air support and tactical bombing, with the heavy bomber and long range bombing taking a strictly subordinate role, although it was still paid lip service to, and as many of the organizations that supported it were already in place. In early 1941, the structure of Soviet aviation received one final alteration. Prior to this, air units were divided between high command, front, army, and troop aviation. The idea of troop aviation was removed, leaving high command, front, and army aviation. High command aviation consisted mostly of bombers, including what was left of the strategic heavy bomber force. Most prominently, this was long-range aviation. Each front, similar to an army group, would receive at minimum one air division of fighters, bombers, and reconnaissance aircraft each. Each army would receive at least a single mixed air division. Now that I've introduced those terms, like air division, I should probably go into the different aviation units. The lowest level unit was the squadron, fighter and ground attack squadron that had 15 to 20 machines. Bomber squadrons had 10 to 12. Four squadrons were grouped together into a fighter or ground attack regiment, while a bomber regiment was five squadrons. Two to four regiments made up an aviation division. Aviation divisions could be purely of one type, such as purely fire divisions, or they could be a mix of regiments, creating a mixed aviation division. These divisions could be combined into an air army, although air armies were not standardized and were created based on specific tasks. In case of a German invasion, there were three major sources of air power for the USSR. Front aviation in the Western military districts was the largest of these, numbering about 7,100 machines. This was about 30% bombers, 60% fighters, with the remainder split between reconnaissance and ground attack aircraft. Of the 7,100, about 20%, or 1,400, were modern. However, only 200 crews were trained to use these aircraft, making them almost a non-entity. The second major force was long-range aviation, which I've already mentioned. Long-range aviation could gather about 1,300 bombers. This group was a bit more modern than front aviation. About 40% of their machines were severely out of date, while 60% were the more modern IL-4, which we'll get into the specifications of these machines. The final significant asset in the West was fleet aviation, those planes attached to naval assets in the Baltic, Black, and Northern Seas. These numbered about 1,400 aircraft, but their primary duty was naval support. This brought the total count of planes available in the West to around 10,000. Perhaps the single most crippling problem the Red Air Force was facing was the lack of training, both for pilots and officers. This had created huge losses at Kalkingol and in Finland, both in combat and accidents, the latter of which would sometimes claim more pilots and machines than the former. 
Officers often lacked an understanding of doctrine or what was feasible for the pilots to do, and pilots often didn't even understand what they were being told to do. These issues were not resolved by June 1941. To the contrary, some had gotten much, much worse, while others received only half-hearted or incomplete solutions. For this, we can lay the blame squarely on the shoulders of two issues. Stalin's great purges in concert with the simultaneous rapid expansion of the Red Air Force. Beginning in 1936, a paranoid Stalin began to suspect that he was under attack by traitors inside the country who intended to overthrow his regime. To preempt the threat, he decided to weed out any and all who were suspected of possible disloyalty. All strata and spheres of Soviet life were under suspicion, but few more so than the military, seen as the largest source of independent power. Within the military, especially the more newly formed and innovative factions, such as the tank forces and the air force, were viewed with a particular suspicion. The worst of the purges ran from 1936 to 1938, although a steady trickle of purges continued up to the German invasion. The impact of the purge for the Red Air Force are difficult to overstate. Three quarters of senior air officers were purged, either relieved of duty, arrested, or executed. These men, whatever their flaws in thinking might have been, were among the most experienced and formed in the Soviet Union when it came to aviation. Replacing them were a litany of political lackeys, promoted for their loyalty, with intelligence, effectiveness, or suitability for the job a distant second concern. On the developmental side, many prominent engineers and scientists were purged. Even Andrei Tulipev, who was a famed bomber designer, was imprisoned in a special forced labor camp for intellectuals on trumped-up charges of treason. Those who kept their positions had to be extremely careful, as diverging from the status quo too much might bring you under suspicion. A failed test or a sloppy error might be read as sabotage, while an innovative but unsuccessful strategy could endanger far more than your career. At the same time as he was shredding the officer corps, Stalin's conducting a tremendous expansion of the Soviet army and air forces. While he did fear internal threats, he was also aware of the growing threat that Germany posed in the West, with a Japanese attack in the East also possible. In preparation for this, Soviet armed forces tripled in size from 1936 to 1941. Thousands of new units required personnel and officers, overwhelming training schools. To compensate, training was accelerated and some materials entirely cut. In 1940, there were some 60,000 officer roles to be filled. New training schools were started, increasing from 12 pilot schools in 1937 to 83 in June of 1941, but there weren't even nearly enough instructors for these schools. Not only that, these flight schools were only supposed to teach basic flying, the ability to get off the ground, not crash while you're in the air, and land. More advanced skills would be taught once they arrived on their bases. This simply wasn't done. Over the winter of 1940-1941, pilots were supposed to engage in extensive training to maintain and grow their skills. Of all the Western military districts, those districts on the border between the Soviet Union and, well now, Germany, it was the Baltic Special Military District that trained the most. What this meant was an average of 18 hours of training, flight time, per pilot over that winter which if you do the math, breaks down to maybe one hour per week. That's not a job, that's a hobby, and a hobby you aren't particularly interested in. It was the worst in the Kiev military district with pilots averaging the six hours of flying, which kind of makes you think that just looking at it, the right Air Force might not like being an Air Force all that much. We can see the impact of this rampant rampant insufficiency in training among crews in these Western military districts just before Barbarossa. Of the air crews assigned to the Western districts, 92% could fly in good daytime conditions. 18% could fly in either good night conditions or bad day conditions. And just 0.7%, so that one in 143 crews, could fly in bad night conditions. Imagine, if you will, if 80% of all drivers couldn't drive in rain, snow, fog, or at night. So depending on where you live, that might not take a whole lot of imagination. 
to compensate for the shortage and these tremendous gaps, junior officers were fast-tracked for promotion, often before they were ready. As late as June 1941, 91% of aviation formation commanders had been in their positions for less than six months. They lacked familiarity with their areas of operation, and many were still learning their skills. As a parallel, imagine a company where interns were promoted to senior managers. Logistically, the situation in the Western districts was truly desperate. Soviet occupation of eastern Poland, North Bukovina, and Bessarabia, and the Baltic states in 1939 and 1940 had pushed the borders westward. This granted some breathing space to the Soviet Union, but it also meant that formerly frontline air infrastructure had to be completely rebuilt in the newly acquired territory. Existing air bases in this new territory was absolutely insufficient for the needs of the Red Air Force, and as late as May of 1941, more than 600 airfields were required. Despite a frantic effort to create and renovate these airfields, it was not nearly complete by June. Despite this, thousands of planes were moved up to the occupied territories. To accommodate this, airfields were filled to and beyond bursting. Bases that were built to hold 20 aircraft sometimes housed as many as 150. Aircraft had to be crammed wing to tip. These bases were also far too close to the German border, rendering them vulnerable to surprise attacks from enemy aircraft or even artillery. This brings us roughly to the end of our description of logistics, organization, uh, and other kind of more conceptual industrial ideas of the Red Air Force. There's more I could say, but this is perhaps the longest episode we've ever had, so we have to move on to the technical side. We're going to look at fighters and bombers and ground attack aircraft, and we're finally going to look at a little bit more of a technical analysis of the Red Army Air Force in June 1941. The first indigenous Soviet fighter design was adopted in, in 1923, two years after a competition had failed to attract a viable proposal. Nikolai Polikarpov, who had worked under Igor Sikorsky, created the winning design in 1923 with his I-400. In the end, the I-400 was deemed unsuitable for long-term use, but Polikarpov continued to develop the concept, working his way through the I-series. In 1933, Polikarpov struck gold twice with his I-15 and I-16 fighters, the I-16 being a more advanced monowing fighter, while the I-15 retained the older bi-wing style. Think of, you know, uh, the Red Baron planes you see in, um, like, Snoopy or something like that, as a kind of bi-wing. Modernized versions of the I-15 were created in the late 1930s, like the I-153 and the I-15 BIS, which had bombing capabilities. The I-15, I-16, and their variants first saw combat experience during the Spanish Civil War. Initially, they fared well against less advanced German HE-51 and Italian CR-32 fighters. But the modern BF-109s easily outmatched the I-15s and I-16s. In China, I-15s were roughly on par with Japanese KI-27s, but I-15 variants and the I-16 were broadly superior in speed and maneuverability. In response to the increasing obsolescence of existing Soviet fighters, Polikarpov, among others, developed a number of prototypes, including the I-17, I-180, I-185, and I-190, all of which proved failures. It was not until 1940 that the I-200, service named the MiG-1, was deemed as an acceptable candidate for a modern fighter. However, owing to handling difficulties and material problems, the MiG-1 was redesigned into the MiG-3, which entered production and service in 1941. The MiG-3 was primarily designed for high-altitude activity. At these heights, it had superior speed to equivalent modern fighters, but low-altitude performance was subpar for other fighters of its class. The MiG-3 was the most produced modern fighter by June 1941, at least in the Soviet Union, with 1,000 machines deployed to Air Force units. Another modern Soviet fighter was a Yak-1, designed by Yakovlev, who had little experience in military design, the Yak-1 still proved itself a quite capable, if rough-around-the-edges, machine. The Yak was a wood and metal construction with surprising speed and maneuverability, and was far more capable at medium to low altitudes than the MiG-3. Compared to the standard German fighter, the BF-109, it was competitive with most variants, although the newest BF-109s at the beginning of the German invasion were somewhat superior. 
However, the Yak-1 was in short supply, with only 90 deployed in the West when the war broke out. The last major modern fighter was the Lag-3. A modification of the Lag-1, the Lag-3 was another mixture of wood and metal. On paper, it had high performance, but most pilots disliked early models. They complained that it was difficult to control, and mechanical defects were common. On the other hand, its materials were cheap, and the airframe was surprisingly tough, unlikely to catch fire even one hit. But these modern fighters, whatever their own flaws might have been, only made about a quarter of total fighter planes in the western districts, with the remainder being assorted I-15s and I-16s. The modern fighters could generally put up something of a fight against the Germans, but the older models were more or less helpless, sitting ducks essentially, and the BF-109 could run circles around all of them. All Soviet planes, but especially the fighters, suffered from insufficient weaponry. 90% of Soviet planes only had machine guns, where most German fighters had cannons as a standard. Cannons had a lower fire rate and a lower magazine capacity, but they were far more powerful, and a few shots could often take down a Soviet plane. Now we turn to bombers. Tsarist Aviation had created an exceptional bomber in the Ilya Mudelmets, designed in 1913 by Igor Sikorsky, its main claim to fame being as the first four-engine aircraft and it proved a persistent nuisance to the Germans during much of World War I. Later, it saw service with both the Red Air Force and the White Russian Forces. As far as indigenous bomber production and design, the biggest name was Andrzej Tupolev, who created and ran the Tupolev Design Bureau. One of his first major efforts was the ANT-4, otherwise known as the TB-1, with new designs coming nearly every year. One of his most produced models, which formed the backbone of the Soviet bomber forces up to Operation Barbarossa, was the SB-2. Designed by Tupolev as the ANT-40, it was developed in 1934 as a fast bomber. The concept of the fast bomber basically says that you don't need to worry about enemy fighters intercepting your bombers if your bombers can simply outrun the enemy fighters. And in 1934, when it was created, it could do this. It had good performance characteristics, although reliability is poor and it required frequent maintenance. Although some of the maintenance and reliability issues were worked out in previous air updates. It was armed with four 7.62mm machine guns for defense. The SB-2 saw action in Spain, China, Finland, and Poland, basically everywhere the Soviets went. In Spain, it succeeded against older German and Italian fighters, being able to outrun most of them, but it lacked speed to do this against the BF-109. It saw more success against Japanese planes, but by 1941 it was nearing obsolete. For a modern tactical bomber and dive bomber, the Air Force had the PE-2. Designed by Vladimir Pedlikov in a special prison, largely in response to the success of tactical bombing by the Luftwaffe, it was introduced into service in March of 1941. Flight characteristics were good, but the plane lacked some of the amenities of modern aircraft. Unfortunately, the P-2 didn't have enough armor to be a good dive bomber, and its weaponry, three 7.62 machine guns and one 12.7mm machine gun, was insufficient. The DB-3 helped round out Soviet long-range bomber forces. The DB-3 was a reworked design of a fast bomber prototype that was rejected in favor of Tupolev's SB-2. Altering it to fit the requirements for a long-range bomber, it had extensive range and a large bombing capacity. An extensively modified variant of the DB-3, the IL-4, simplified construction while improving general performance. Both the DB-3 and the IL-4 lacked the bombing capacity of dedicated strategic bombers, but it had the range to execute strategic missions deep behind enemy lines, so it was good enough, basically. The DB-3 was armed with three 7.62mm machine guns and a 20mm can. The IL-4 only had three machine guns, two 7.62mm and one 12.7mm. Throughout the 1930s, the Red Air Force lacked a viable, purpose-built ground-attack aircraft. In this role, they employed modified light bombers or fighters. The requirements for such an airplane were hard to meet. It would need enough armor to withstand enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire and heavy weapons to successfully attack ground forces. This would make the aircraft heavy, but it would also need an engine powerful enough not to just get it in the air, but to allow it to execute steep dives and tight turns. For a long time, while Soviet doctrine recognized the value of such an aircraft, Soviet engineering and industry was unable to meet these specifications. After years of development, engineers were finally able to work out the technical difficulties, and the IL-2 was accepted for use in March of 1941. 
The IL-2 was often described mostly lovingly as a flying tank, and I'm inclined to agree. The engine and pilot were protected by an armored shell, which offered 5 to 12 millimeters of steel plating. Rifle rounds and most machine gun rounds would simply bounce off, and it also offered a measure of protection from some shrapnel or anti-aircraft fire. The IL-2 was also armed to the teeth. It had a pair of 23-millimeter automatic cannons, two 7.62-millimeter machine guns, and later versions included a rear-facing 12.7-millimeter machine gun. The IL-2 was a high-quality machine, but like other ground-attack aircraft, suffered a vulnerability to fighters due to its comparatively inferior maneuverability and speed. Because of its delayed development, production had been limited, with only around 250 made and even fewer actually assigned to the air units when Barbarossa began. The Red Air Force, doctrinally, logistically, technologically, and organizationally, was in the midst of a state of transition, brutally interrupted by a German invasion. Soviet organizations were overwhelmed undersupplied and confused, and would have likely required at least another year to complete their modernization process. The great bulk of Soviet aircraft were unable to compete with their Luftwaffe counterparts, while Soviet pilots were similarly outmatched. All the while, the Red Air Force was operating without a truly clear vision, and was laboring under more than a few misconceptions. If it was to survive the German onslaught, it would need to rely on its mass and those trained pilots and quality aircraft it had to survive, all while holding out against a qualitatively superior enemy and having to rapidly learn lessons years overdue. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Again, it is my solemn pledge. I was in a week of publication. You will have the first episode on Operation Barbarossa itself. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or if you want to bet me that I will not fulfill my promise, I will make money on that bet, by the way, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Until then, I'm Harry, and I'll see you next week.